0: Now Larry Malament, your senior pastor who I have the highest regard for and who's another reason why there is so much hope and anticipation for Grace Church in the days to come. Well, Larry asked me to speak on the topic of evangelism. And that's a subject of great interest and really burden to me. So No arm twisting was necessary for me to accept the assignment, and I also didn't have to contemplate very long which passage I wanted to preach, as few stories of witnessing are as profound or as instructive as the narrative of Christ's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. That story it's found in John chapter four. If you would look in your Bible there, with me. And I, I got a comment. I, I, feel like I'm standing on a band-aid or something here. I'm. Can I? I, I'm. I, I'm not that old. Can I? Do you mind if I? Do you mind if I move the sponge? had knee surgery. I mean, I preach for a long time, but not that long. Orthopedic shoes. I'm not there yet. Um, I I really I felt like I was <clears throat> I need a solid rock under me um All right so uh so because this is a longer passage of Scripture, I'm just going to be reading each portion as we come to it. And here's the outline I've come, with, uh, come up with that I hope will help you organize the, the development of this glory story. Number one is Jesus meets people where they are. If you're taking notes, number one is Jesus meets people where they are, and that's verses 1 through 9. Number two is Jesus reveals people's deepest need, it's verses 10 through 18. And number three is going to be Jesus transforms people into true worshipers. That's verse 19 to 26. So let's begin with point one. Jesus meets people where they are. Look at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea. And departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now some background data is really necessary to understand the radical lengths Jesus goes to meet people where they are. And it's hidden in that tiny phrase, and he had to pass through Samaria. So, so here's what's going on. Let me set this up for you. Jesus had to withdraw from Judea. He had just confronted the religious establishment by clearing the, the temple precincts of animals and, and money changers, which certainly raised their ire. But now his popularity is outstripping that of John the Baptist. It's attracting, And that's attracting even more scrutiny from the authorities. So Jesus needs to lay low for a while. And to do so, he's going to make his way to a small fishing town called Galilee, about 80 miles to the north. But to get there, verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, to our modern ears, that's just some unknown location. But to the Jews, Samaria was a detestable place. In fact, most Israelites would travel dozens of miles out of their way to avoid having to pass through Samaria. And there are multiple reasons why. For starters, Samaritans were not pure Jews. They were half-breeds. When Assyria conquered the northern Kingdom in 722 BC. They deported the majority of Israelites that they didn't kill in battle back to Nineveh, but they left some there to maintain the land. But those who were left there were forced to intermarry with their captors and to assimilate their pagan culture. So when the remnant of pure Israelites returned from captivity, Samaritans not only represented the nation's lowest moment of suffering God's punishment for their idolatry, they actually looked like the very enemy that butchered them, that subjugated them. See, when a Jew saw a Samaritan, he saw an Assyrian. He saw defilement, judgment, mixture and hostilities between Jews and Samaritans were only exacerbated further because of their religious differences. Samaritans only accepted the first five law books of the Old Testament. They also set up this rival temple on Mount Gerizim. That sacred structure to them was actually torn down by the Jewish rulers in a bloody assault around 128 BC. So the animosity between these two people was was horrific. So you see, it, it's not just that Jesus meets people where they are, it's how very far he is willing to go to get to them. He had to pass through Samaria, it says. He had to, to reach them. And that meant he had to cross major boundaries, he had to cross racial boundaries. He had to cross religious boundaries. He had to cro- They're heretics. He, he had to cross, as we'll see in this, a moment, he had to cross social boundaries. Look with me. You're going to have to keep looking at your Bibles. Look with me at verse 5 where we're going to find him talking to a woman, which is even more unthinkable. It says there, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar. Do you see it? near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That parenthetical comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, literally translated would be for Jews Don't use together with Samaritans. In other words, they don't use the same dishes together, or utensils together, or cups together. They don't eat together or drink together. They do not have table fellowship together because that would be defiling. But here Jesus completely disregards those rules. He, he he is undaunted by the impurity that would result from interacting with an unorthodox Samaritan, and on top of that, he completely rejects the taboo of speaking men that is speaking to women. See, see women in the ancient near east and sadly still today were considered property. Many Israelite rabbis believed women were intrinsically more sinful than men. And, and they even refused to talk to them about the things of God. How, how sickening. How, how grievous that the majority of the world still treats ladies that way. But listen, what's true Today was even worse then. And that is why this Samaritan woman is so shocked. Look at her response. Look at your Bibles in verse 9. How is it, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I was born in 1969. That was five years that was only 5 years after the end of segregation in our country in the deep south the passing of civil rights laws did did not immediately change people's prejudice and listen to this into the 90s i mean the 70s excuse me into the 70s you could still find in truck stops and in diners restrooms that were for whites, and others that were marked for coloreds. Stop and think about that. When I was in kindergarten, that's 40 years ago. In this country, there were separate facilities for black people. Caucasians would, would not sit on the same toilet. Or drink out of the same water fountain as a fellow human being made in the image of God. As, as appalling as that sin is to us now, it's, it's still really hard for us to appreciate what an evil that was in America. And I, I'm just too removed from it. I, I did not grow up in a region of the country where I witnessed that. I'm not a non-minority. I would not have experienced that. But I I think if I did, I think if I grew up in the 60s, and I lived in the South, and I was a black man, I think I could understand, and I could appreciate much better what is going on here with Jesus reaching out to this Samaritan woman. John John chapter 4 is like Jesus sitting next to a water fountain marked colored in Montgomery, Alabama, half a century ago, and saying to a black woman who approaches to fill up her bottle, can I have a drink from that? That's what this is like. Do do you remember the point, the title of our point? Jesus meets people where they are. What an understatement. He is smashing through massive obstacles of race and gender and religion. He is communicating a worth and an equality that is unheard of. And that point's even more stunning given the promiscuous character of this woman, which we will learn later. But but even here in the introduction, there are clues that she has issues. For starters, she's getting her water alone. Did you notice that? It's also at the hottest time of the day. The the sixth hour is noon. So this is both unsafe and uncomfortable. And it's for a reason. Most likely, her immorality has caused her to be an outcast. Rejected by her village. It certainly would be hard to imagine how she would be popular, especially among the ladies of a small town, given her seductive lifestyle. But none of that stops Christ. Jesus meets people where they are. He cares about them. He's not afraid of their past. He goes to them in their shame, and in their wickedness, and in their loneliness, and in their ignorance, and He overwhelms them with His compassion. He doesn't shun. He moves towards sinners. And where I think the greatest demonstration of that occurs in this passage is in verse 6. It's not in him as a pure-blood Jew relating to a bastard Samaritan. And it's not in him as a man honoring this poor woman as significant as those things are. No, it's actually in this line that I see Jesus meeting people where they are unlike any other. Look at it again with me. So Jesus, wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus was wearied. Jesus was thirsty. Listen, because Jesus was a man. The the biggest... Barrier he crossed was adding to his divine nature a human one. That's the greatest distance he traveled. He took on our very form. Why? So he could become tired. So he could become parched. So he could suffer the effects of the fall like us and for us. See, when you study the Gospel of John... You always have to keep a finger in chapter one. That's uh, for your young people, that's a reference to books. You could actually keep your finger in one place. Uh, b- but you could also use your finger to scroll back or up or down to, to done one. But, but you have to keep that in mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God we're reading about. God the Son, veiled in flesh, is sitting on a curb, a a dusty street, sweltering in the heat with a cracked throat. And the reason He chose such misery over the eternal glory that He had always enjoyed as the center of all heavenly worship was because he valued this tramp. This woman who had been used and just discarded regularly. She she practiced a false religion. She didn't have a legitimate ancestry in her past. She didn't have a friend in the present except the second person of the Trinity. God was sitting with her as an exhausted traveler wanting to share a drink and a conversation. And He didn't just come from Jerusalem to reach her. He came from heaven. Do you you know that Jesus made that unfathomable journey to meet you right where you are? That he, He specifically Tenderly, sacrificially came down for you. He he personally found you. He sat right down next to you. In your misery, in your, in your losses. Listen, Christ could not have traversed greater divides. To rescue us. He he became one of us. To be with us. to, To know us. To suffer for us. To save us. Jesus meets people where they are. So the question has to be, do you? Do you meet people where they are. Do you imitate this kind of caring evangelism towards others? Listen, we we can we can meet people where they are. Just like this, people people that are hurting, people that are different from us, people people that are outcasts. The the opportunities. I experience in the gym I belong to, they are just innumerable to that end. There are all kinds of individuals that no one will talk to, so I, I go out of my way to engage them. One, one guy I met in the locker room not too long ago w- was was so covered with tattoos and, and body piercings in the most sensitive areas. So it... I mean, he's screaming for attention. So I just here's how I here's how I broke the ice. Hey, man, tell, tell me tell me the story behind your body art. And listen, this this guy could talk, and, and, and away he went. There's another guy who has a severe disability. He he walks with a limp. He can't uh, speak uh, without great difficulty. But that I wouldn't let that keep me. From trying to get to know him. There's another guy there who's a very devout Muslim. Actually, I've seen him praying to Allah on the, in the racquetball courts. And I've gone up to him and said, hey, what, what, what? was? tell me about that. And I've had many challenging conversations with him about the deity of Christ. Listen, we are called to meet people where they are. It, it's not easy. At times, it, it's downright scary. There are, there are barriers to overcome, but you have to think about what they are for you. What keeps you from reaching individuals? Is it, is it their cursing? Is it their skin color? Is it, is it their position of authority? Maybe your boss. Is it, is it their beliefs, their age? Listen, Jesus meets people where they are, and his example is in that with the woman at the well reminds us that he did that for us and that above all else is what inspires us and empowers us to emulate the same towards others all right so that's point one <clears throat> do you got it jesus meets people where they are point two is that Jesus reveals people's different need. Remember verse 9. The woman asked in astonishment, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here, here's Jesus' answer. Look with me at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What what amazing words these must have seen to the woman. This radically kind, dehydrated Jewish traveler is saying that if she knew who he really was, she would have been asking him for a drink. In other words, he could meet her need for water even more than she could meet his. And understandably, she, she questions this. Look back at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. It's actually 100 feet, and it's still that deep today. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, not unlike Nicodemus a chapter earlier, this Samaritan can't think beyond the physical. Nicodemus couldn't see his spiritual need to be made born again, and so he asked how a person could literally re enter his mother's womb. He he processed Jesus' words naturally. The woman likewise can't conceive of how a stranger would be able to retrieve water from the well, or how he could dig one as Jacob the patriarch had centuries earlier. Jesus then distinguishes even further between the water she is wanting, you know, the kind that she wouldn't have to make daily trips for to the well in the heat of the day. He distinguishes between that and the deeper thirst he is offering to quench. Look back at the Bible, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, that's Jacob's well, the physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The the, the Samaritan woman still can't stop thinking about the gratification of her immediate physical need. Just like every other person who is lost, who is dry spiritually, there is no other reference point for processing such a conversation, even though Jesus is increasingly clear, he is not talking about H2O. Notice he says, This water causes the end of all thirst. That's impossible in a physical sense. The the living water he gives also flows from within a person. It wells up in the individual, ever replenishing itself. And then its effect isn't the sustaining of life in this semi-arid terrain. No, it's the creation of eternal life. Those who drink it will live forever. Did you happen to notice, did it even get projected the title of the sermon? Oh, you saw it in your bulletins. Look at it. Do you see what the title is? The woman at the wells, plural. And the reason I chose wells not well, is because she does not realize she's actually standing in front of two wells. The one that Jacob excavated that represents the old covenant, it provides a temporary quenching and it's physical. But the other well is Jesus himself. He is the supernatural spring, the fountain of life that alone can meet our deepest longings. See, that's why in evangelizing this woman, Jesus turns the conversation to revealing her deepest thirst, what she needs most, because until she understands that her biggest issue isn't water for her throat, but for her soul, she's going to keep trying to draw from the wrong well. Now, it might not be immediately evident that Jesus is exposing her primary need, but see if you can discern it with what he brings up to her about her husband in verse 16. Look there again, noses and Bibles. Jesus said to her, he's he's going to reveal her deepest need here. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Remember, Jesus has so lovingly befriended this woman in ways that have shattered all customary norms. But now, he exposes her vilest sins. They're talking about sources of water, and he abruptly points out she's a serial fornicator, an adulterer, that she's had illicit sex with nearly half a dozen men. Point two is that Jesus reveals people's deepest need, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He's showing her that what she needs more than anything is forgiveness. To be made right with God. Her desire for love or pleasure, her wanting to belong, to be safe in a relationship, that all these affairs represent that can only come from Christ. She's been drinking from the wrong well. Jeremiah 2.13 says, you'll see it projected over my head, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. I need some water. The Samaritan woman's choices were not accidents. They were not the result of some determinative circumstance in her upbringing. No, they came from her rebellion. Her own self-exalting attempts to satisfy her thirst from her own reservoirs, which is a rejection of God. And because of that, it could not be more loving than for Jesus to uncover her idolatry. In fact, this is so critical to evangelism. After Jesus met the Samaritan woman where she was, He proceeded to show her where she truly was. Her her, ultimate problems were not that her latest live-in boyfriend didn't seem like the right one either, or being ostracized by the community, or the difficulty it was every day trying to fetch water in the heat. No, her greatest issue was her sin against a holy God and her need for atonement. And that is true of everyone. Church, we cannot shy away from this in our witness. In fact, biblically, we have not presented the gospel apart from declaring the sinfulness of sin and the call to repentance. Now, that that doesn't have to be done in the first conversation or even the fifth, especially with those we are building longer-term relationship with. But we have to move towards that goal. We, We cannot be like... So many in evangelicalism whose strategy is the exact opposite. To avoid negativity at all costs. Now we must follow Jesus' example here. As uncomfortable as that may be. And there's so much I could say, but let let me insert a quick practical implication that might help you first get into position where you can, like Jesus, then reveal people's deepest need. And it's simply this. Eat with sinners. Eat with sinners. We see the Lord doing that here. He's, he's sharing water with the woman. Later in the chapter, He's going to eat with the entire village. And the Gospels record multiple instances of His dining with tax collectors and prostitutes. See, Christians can be so fearful of this part of evangelism that is confronting people's sins that they never even take the first step of meeting people where they are. But but you can do this. Just be friendly. Look people in the eyes. Show concern about their lives. And eventually just, just ask your coworker out to lunch. Sit down in the school cafeteria with someone who's by themselves. Invite another mom to have a cup of coffee with you. A- ask your neighbors if they'd sit on your deck with you and enjoy some dessert you made. And, and in those settings, just, just seek to learn about, about their upbringing and their hobbies and, and career and children and interests. And see if they don't start asking about what's important in your life. And remember, if it's someone you're likely to have further opportunities with, you don't need to unload the full counsel of God on them in that moment. No, just, just share some general te- generalities about your testimony. See how they process your assessment of yourself as a sinner. And, and if there's any receptivity, just, just take it a step further. Ask them who they think Jesus is. What do they believe about His teachings? And not just on love, but on, on justice and on, and on judgment. And encourage them to read God's Word. So, so listen, without a doubt, building relationships like that, earning the capital to reveal people's deepest needs, to, po- to point out their sin, that really is the most effective strategy evangelistically. But... But sometimes, and I want to say this, sometimes you really do just need to call people out on their sin, even those you don't know. It's the loving thing to do. That's what Jesus is doing with this Samaritan woman. So so I was sitting at Wegmans a while ago, and a lady, several seatings down from me, began screaming in, in what sounded like an African accent she began screaming very loudly into her phone she was she was cursing her husband she, she was really rampaging him. she was slamming chairs and this this went on for for twenty minutes before she eventually stormed out of the store and My heart was was sorrowful and and compassionate and, and broken at the same time i was, I was praying, and I, I wanted to do something so i I, I didn't think about it. I just, I just hurried after her. And I finally caught up to her in the parking lot. She's still talking to her husband. And, and before she got to her car, I said, Excuse me, ma'am. I, I know you're, you're having a difficult time right now. I, just, I'm pr- I was praying for you. I'm a pastor. If there's anything I can do at all to help you, I, I would be more than happy to. And she, she just went ballistic on me. She was screaming, I have been baptized and God has never done a bleeping thing. She is just freaking out. And at that point, I, I raised my voice in, in what I believe was righteous anger, and I said, ma'am, you will not stand in judgment of God. On the last day, you will give account for every blasphemous word you've spoken about him. You will answer to him before his throne, and your problem is not your husband. You have a problem with God, and you are running from him. And I said it about that loud and about that intense, and she just stared at me. There's other people around. This, this is in the parking garage. And she's holding her phone. And I think, I, I think she was shocked. I think she was afraid. And she just goes, this pastor is trying to preach to me about Jesus. So uh, I, felt bit, I felt a little bit bad for her husband because I increased the, the tirade. But, but I, I think rebuking her was what Christ would do. I think it was the right thing. I think it was it was a rescue. It was a rescue preserver. It was a it was a lifeline. Listen, if we're not gonna do that for sinners, who who is? I, I, I what I want is I want for you to see how practical Christ's example is here. Once We have moved outward in acceptance towards people. And even my gracious approach to this woman, this irate woman, I was was meeting her where she was. I was being kind. But listen, once we love people, we must keep loving them by confronting them with their sin. And then and only then are we positioned to preach to them the life of changing grace, the living water of the gospel. And that's where point three will conclude. So, number one, Jesus meets people where they are. Number two was, Jesus reveals people's deepest need. And number three is, Jesus transforms people into true worshipers. After Jesus called the Samaritan woman on her promiscuity... Look at what she says to him in verse 19. She's very stunned. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So there's, there's just no doubt about this. This woman wants to change the subject. She does not want to talk about her immorality, and few unbelievers do. So she brings up something controversial, and again, something physical or external, the different worship sites of the Jews and the Samaritans. Her people sing and sacrifice and pray on Mount Gerizim, while Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is the location for the Jews. And Jesus replies in verse 21, it's startling. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus here renounces the Samaritan practices. He says flat out, they're wrong. You worship what you don't know. You are ignorant. You do not worship in truth. In other words, their sincerity earns No points. Judaism, however, in its acceptance of all of the Old Testament prophecies and writings, and in its capital city of Jerusalem and temple focus there, is correct. Despite the misinterpretations and legalism often attending it, and which Jesus regularly corrects. Nevertheless, it is from the Jews that the way of salvation is outlined even though they miss it themselves. And that's evident in verse 21. There Jesus said that a time is coming when the worship of God would not happen on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. And he says that most emphatically. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And I'm not sure what would be more alarming For the woman to find out that her religion is false or for the Jews to find out that theirs is incomplete and moving towards a greater fulfillment that would make their current physical practice and understanding obsolete. So, I know that was a little complex. Just stay with me. Here's Jesus' point. Approaching God through the temple rituals is coming to an end. An hour is dawning when worship will not be limited to a geographic spot. Just like here Jesus is proving that worship will not be bound to a certain nationality or gender, but it will be worship in spirit. Not the outward forms of mountains and temples and liturgy, but the internal, spiritual, welling up of living water. He elaborates that in John 7 where he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Do you see, this is how one drinks from the water Jesus offers. It's by believing in Him. By trusting in Him. By looking to Him alone. That faith is what, humanly speaking, brings about the cleansing, the refreshing, the enlivening of the Holy Spirit. But divinely speaking, this Spirit filled worship is secured through the hour that Jesus says is coming. In verse 15. Throughout the Gospel of John, that hour is cited. And it's a reference to the cross. There, Jesus would hang on a cursed tree, paying the penalty for All of our sins. Removing the barrier between us and God morally, socially, religiously, racially. That hour is how Jesus transforms people into true worshipers. And it is the good news that we must communicate to unbelievers. And and it just doesn't have to be complicated. There's a 20-year-old Jehovah's Witness I have a fairly good friendship with. We've talked multiple times about everything from his family to the, the doctrine of sin and the state of the world. He is regularly trying to convince me that our religions are the same. And, and, and sometimes I'll point out the obvious differences, like the fact that, that I believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus' deity while they hold him to be the Archangel Michael, which has completely no support in Scripture. But, but not too long ago, you know what I decided? I just thought I'm just going to preach the gospel to him. And all I said was something like this. Listen, here's, I said, here's where we are fundamentally not. If you boil down your religion, it has to do with what you do for God. But what the Bible teaches is that Christianity is what God has done for us. And I just, I just shared what, what you know in your heart, what we sing about, what is so precious to you. He hung there. He took my sins. I should have suffered that. Right? It, it wasn't. It wasn't poetic. It wasn't pr- profound to me. It, it's it's the air I breathe. It's it's what you live based on. It's it's what this church loves. I just I just shared that, and there, there was no real response. We we did actually trade. Uh, uh, phone numbers which was encouraging and and so this was amazing just a few weeks ago that was early in the summer just a few weeks ago he texts me he says Bob I'd like to get together with you to talk more about what the Bible says and then he said this and by the way my mom just suddenly passed away I I couldn't believe it do you see he was reaching out to me for help Please pray for Derek. Pray that the truth of the gospel, that Christ is the Savior, will regenerate him. That is what happened to the Samaritan woman. Look at how her story concludes in verse 25. The woman said to Jesus, so she threw up all the smoke screens, all the rabbit trails, and she says, I know that Messiah's coming. She's trying to deflect again. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus is just done. He's, he's done with the excuses. He's done with, what about the pygmies in Africa and aren't all religions the same? He just cuts through all of it and says, I Who speak to you. And he could, could you imagine? She is talking to the Messiah. The living water himself. And she is immediately changed in his presence. All he does is disclose his saving identity. And it transforms her into a true worshiper. Church, that's where our confidence is. That is the power of God for salvation. That is what we must proclaim to this town, to this county, to your neighbors, and to the world. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is Lord. He was born to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners Like you and me. And do you know what happens in the in the following passage? The Samaritan woman's conversion could not be more evident. This this broken peasant prostitute. You know what it says? It says she dropped her bucket. Do you remember the things she was counting on? She the the, the physical satisfaction she was looking for. It's beautiful. Read it later this afternoon. She drops her bucket and she runs. She runs to her town to tell others that Jesus transforms people into true worshipers. And my friends, that is the same thing we are called to as well. Let's Let's build bridges of compassion, meeting people where they are. Then let's courageously confront them with their sin and its damning consequences and the deepest needs it reveals. But please don't stop there. We must finally tell them that there is a Christ and He is the one who is speaking to them, who died for them, on a tree and that if they will put their faith in him alone for redemption they will be transformed into true worshipers let's pray so Lord we want to conclude there the majority of the people in this room have been transformed into true worshipers when you revealed to us that you are the Christ the savior and lord that that unspeakable miracle cannot be contained lord forgive us for how we how we conceal it how we keep it to ourselves how we We allow even church at times to become about us and and our kind of holy huddle. Lord, I acknowledge even in my own life, I've I've recently lacked zeal in evangelism. I'm ashamed that these stories are months old. Lord, you have done a work in our hearts. You have traveled the distance to get to us. You have. You have made us worshipers of what is right and real and true. You have given us spiritual life when we were walking around enslaved to the physical, starving and thirsty and blind. So Lord, help us. Help us to run with this good news. Help us to courageously confront the sin that you so compassionately did through others, through your word and through the spirit of conviction. Help us, Lord, to take our place, Lord. You have raised this church up for that purpose, Lord. It is that they might proclaim the glorious good news of Jesus Christ come and His death for sinners.